Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I really have never gotten over that. I, I, didn't, I didn't make that part up. It's disappointing, but what a, what a delight to be here at Southeastern. And you can go ahead and turn in your uh, copy of Scripture to Psalm chapter 2 as we work through the Psalms together. And uh, let me say what a delight it is for us to be able to share in uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ together and to look at a passage of Scripture that this week becomes for us in some ways um, a um, emblematic of what the the Great Commission really is and what it's about. It's uh, one of the most clear um, Old Testament passages where you have the Great Commission presented to us and in some ways becomes the backdrop to what Jesus gives uh, offers to us in Matthew 28. Um, it, one of the reasons why I'm delighted to be able to share this passage together is because we have a shared mission that we participate in not just uh, those of us who are Southern Baptist or those of us who are evangelical, those of us who follow Jesus, but those of us who are on this campus. Um, To have uh, a daughter who is a student here and a son-in-law who is a student here um, is in some ways the culmination of uh, basically half my life that I've spent as a professor here at Southeastern. Uh, This place means a great deal to our family. Uh, You mean a great deal to our family, and to me personally, thank you for all that you continue to do. And when we look at Psalm chapter 2, we get a message of of hope, Uh, hope not just for us, but hope for the nations. In other words, it gives us some, some reason for doing what we do. The reason why you put in the time, the effort, the energy, the reason why you give of yourself and your your finances to fund your studies as you come here, and the reason why you choose to be at Southeastern and not to be in so many other places that you could be as a gifted young man or as a gifted young woman is because of what the message of Psalm 2 offers to us. And so I want us to take a few moments to uh, look through this passage together. And so Psalm chapter 2, I'll read it aloud, and as I read aloud, you can read silently there, but we'll hear what is the Word of God. Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Well, the kings of the earth, they take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, his king, his Christ. Let's tear off their chains, they say, and throw their ropes off of us. Well, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And then he speaks to them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. And so now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment, but all who take refuge in him are blessed. So Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20, the the Great Commission. 
Uh, Jesus says that because he's the one who has all dominion over the heavens and the earth, because he's, he's God and man, because he is the one who has this authority or this dominion, that you should make disciples of him, and that you should do so from all nations. And we might ask, uh, it would make sense if we did, who are the nations? Where do they come from, and why should they become disciples of Jesus, and what does it mean to make disciples of Jesus? There's a lot in, contained in that one statement, make disciples of me from all nations, that requires some unpacking, that we can't just make assumptions of what all of these things mean. And so there is some backdrop to Jesus' proclamation that our commission, that our command is to go and make disciples of all nations, and it's here. It's Psalm 1 and 2. Now, the, the two chapters, Psalm 1 and 2, go together. In some ways, this is kind of like volume 2 of the sermon. The first volume was back a few weeks ago when Dr. Aiken preached uh, in Psalm 1. And so he shared the first part of it. And then I'm going to come in and kind of clean up the, ba- the, the second part of it. Not clean up what he said, but clean up the, clean up the passage. And so it's like WWE tag team wrestling. When I was a kid, there was a lot of tag team wrestling, the Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express and other, uh, you know, tag team wrestlers, wrestlers that, uh, you know, were participating. And so that's us. We're the two tag team wrestlers this morning. So he, he got Psalm chapter 1, which promised to us blessing to all those who are righteous. And there's a, there, there's a beginning to Psalm 1 where we look for the blessed man, the one who doesn't give himself over to sin, who doesn't walk in the way that scoffers walk, who doesn't uh, give themselves over to those who would be the unwise and the foolish. And chapter 1 ended then with those who are the wicked, that the wicked are those that can't stand up when the judgment comes, that they have, they have no means by which they're, they're going to stand. They're more like tumbleweed, as it were. They're just getting blown around by all the wind that comes. And then the end of chapter 2 that we just saw returns to this idea of blessing again. It's what you know as an inclusio, that at the very beginning there's blessing, and at the very end there is blessing as well. And everything in between the two is giving you explanation of, of how you get there. So how does it go from a single man in chapter 1 who is blessed to the option for all human beings to be blessed? What is it that is required for that blessing to come? And it is the passage that we've read today that offers us that. It is trust in this particular king. But in order to get there, the psalmist, having told us at the end of chapter 1 that there is this this, uh, raging uh, sin that we all struggle with, this failure and weakness that we all have, we all are the wicked, there's only one who is righteous, he starts then in chapter 2 with a question. If that's true, then why is it that the nations are raging? And why is it that the peoples are plotting in vain? So the backdrop to Jesus' great commission to us to go and make disciples of all nations is to say the people from whom disciples of me are supposed to come are these, the ones who are raging and plotting, (laughs) the ones who are the wicked. They're the ones who are to be called into this discipleship, this relationship that one would have with Jesus. But the psalmist asks the question, why would they do this if what is said in chapter 1 is true? 
I mean, honestly, if you, if you read chapter 1 and it's, now look, if you're the wicked, you're just going to be blown around. There's no life. There's no blessing. It, it's not like you're planted by a stream where you're going to have prosper, where you're going to produce fruit. I mean, you're going to be this fruitless tree. You're going to have a, a useless and a meaningless life if you aren't blessed, if you don't have the blessing that God offers, if you aren't the one that's meditating day and night in the law of the Lord, and if you are the one that's giving yourself over to sin and to scoffing, it's a meaningless life. And so the psalmist says, so why would people rage? You may feel the same way. I do. I, I look at people who don't know Jesus, and I think, why do you want that? What's the purpose and the point of your choosing to not follow after Christ when he offers you such an opportunity to have life? And the answer to the question of why there is this rebellion, this raging, this plotting against the Lord actually comes in the next verse. There's a, there's a question that's giving, why do the nations, why do the people do this? And the answer is quite simple here in verse 2, because they're listening to the wrong kings. You see, the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth take their stand and they conspire against the Lord. In other words, the problem that the people have to whom we are going to share the gospel is not that they're bad, bad people, it's that they're bad off. If we aren't careful, we can sometimes think that the nations are those who, the, the wickedness that they, distrib, that they show and that they demonstrate is a wickedness that is either religious or moral. That the problem that people have is a religious problem or it's a moral problem. They just don't have the, the right practices. They don't have the right cult that they're a part of. They don't, aren't doing the right things. They aren't going to church when they should go to church. And maybe they're going to the wrong church. Or they have some kind of moral problem. They're, they're bad people. And as a result of being bad people, they lash out at God. Unfortunately, though, the nations are not those who necessarily see themselves as lashing out against God because, as the passage alludes to here, they are deceived. You see, the problem with the nations is not that they're bad necessarily, it's that they're bad off. It's that they have become deceived by the kings and the rulers. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all right, when Adam was told by God, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the woman then is deceived by the by the serpent. And when God comes to confront the, the woman and the man for their sin, it is the serpent's deception which is at the root of the woman's transgression. Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 2. Adam, on the other hand, having heard quite clearly from God his very voice of what he should and should not do, receives the greatest amount of judgment in the passage. But it is the serpent who deceives humanity. And it is this deceiver that the book of Revelation reminds us is the one who is behind all that's going on in our world. You see, all of the kings and the rulers that you see here in Psalm chapter 2 are those who behind them have a, a spiritual force. You see, if you really want to understand the, the book, of, Psalm, of the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 1 and 2. You need to go to the best commentary on Psalm 1 and 2, and actually it's a two-volume commentary. The first volume is the Gospel of John, and the second volume of that commentary is the book of Revelation. If, when you read the Gospel of John and you read the book of Revelation, you get the best commentary available on Psalm 1 and 2, and in Psalm 2 in particular this morning. 
And when Psalm 2 is interpreted by the book of Revelation, where you have all of these kings, all of these rulers, those who, the, the beasts and all of the, the rule with they, which they have been given and that they enact in the, in the world in which they live, we're told that it's the dragon, the old deceiver, the serpent, the accuser, that he's the one who's behind what they're doing. You and I have to understand that when we go to the nations, when we go to men and women who are living this life raging against the righteousness of God and raging against God himself and plotting against God, they do so because they have kings and rulers who have deceived them. It's a very interesting thing to give yourself for someone else's benefit. You may not be a sports fan, but I'm a sports fan, and it's fascinating to me, sports fans, right? So several weeks ago, there was a college football game that went on, and one particular college football team beat the other one. And a bunch of people that I know and that you know tweeted out and put on Facebook, we want a national championship. There may be some people that you know sitting in this room who tweeted and posted those things. We want a national championship. And you think, we? We won a national championship. You see, what happens with the nations is this, that there are kings and there are rulers who have come to these people and deceived them into thinking, if you will support us, then we will all win. And in the end, the only one who gets to take the trophy home is the king. (laughs) It's not the people. And so while the the nations are seen as those who are raging against our God, God doesn't see the nations as his enemies, which is why in this passage he promises that he will give to the nations life if they'll change kings. You see, the problem with listening to the wrong king is that the king is more than happy to stand by to the last drop of your blood. You know, imagine what it must have been like to, been, to, to have been in, say, medieval Europe or to have been in a tribe in South America or Africa or someplace where there's a king, there's a ruler that says, I'm going to go to war with the tribe that's next to me and I want you to join me in this. And you think, great, what do I get out of it? You get to be on my team. If, if we win, then we win. And if we lose, then you die. And to think, sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> And people did that, and they, they sometimes do it all of the time, where the only one who wins in the end is the, is the king or is the ruler, and the, the people lose. You see, the way that Paul interprets this in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians is that there are rulers and powers and principalities within this world. There are spiritual rulers and kings that people follow after, and the nations have been deceived by them and therefore are enslaved to them. It should break our hearts that when we look at the nations around us, that their greatest problem is not that they are lacking. It's that they have given themselves over to the wrong king. And this raging, this rebellion against God is not because they have tried God and they have found him lacking and have therefore chosen to reject him. That's Pelagianism, as you learn about in your theology classes. Instead, For so many of them, they have been deceived into following the wrong kings. And as we go to share the gospel, we're announcing there is another king 
not the powers and the principalities of this world, not those who have conspired against the Lord and his anointed, his Christ, but there is that anointed one. There is that Christ, this king which they can follow. And so as the nations follow after their kings and the powers and the principalities that would deceive them and lead them astray, the Lord speaks to those kings and says, enough, enough. And we see this in the book of Revelation where he looks at the kings of this earth and he says, no more. It will not continue any further. And so he ridicules them and he mocks them, we see, but then he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them. The book of Revelation, whenever he lashes out at them, they freeze, they stop in their fear to hear. The people here who have been deceived now have another option. There's a voice that calls out to them and says, no longer be deceived. No longer follow the kings that you have followed, the gods of this age, the powers and the principalities that are here. Be freed from their slavery because, God says, I have installed my king in Zion. I put him on the mountain. I've established him there. When you read the Gospel of John, where is it that you see our God lifted up and established? It's on the cross. It's on this mountain as the Christ is high and lifted up. He promises that he will then draw all peoples to myself. Precisely what we see in this passage here, as Jesus is lifted up high on the cross, the king who has been established and installed on the mountain, the exalted one, is drawing the nations to himself. See, it's not just that the nations are those who have listened to the wrong kings and who as a result of that are, are the bad off ones, if you will, who have been deceived and as a consequence suffer the consequences of being on the wrong team. It's also those for whom, they are also those for whom God has sent his king. See, you and I can, we can share the gospel with confidence, knowing that every person that we encounter Every nation that we, that we go to, that we send others to, and that we ourselves make, make trips to go to, that we know when we go to these people and we talk to these nations that they are the ones for whom God has established his king. That he has not looked at them and said, you are my enemies and therefore you are outside of my reach. The Bible tells us that this is God's love for people. That there is no one that he desires that would perish. But his desire, his will, is that all would come to repentance. And so he has established a king as the alternative to the deceiving kings, the kings who represent the serpent, the great deceiver. There is another king that is the alternative. And when you and I go and share the gospel with people, when we send missionaries, when we encounter people down the street or across the world, when we encounter them, we have a, a simple announcement for them. There's a, there's a better king. It's a better way. Now, those of us who perhaps have only known the Deep South have known a culture and a context where everybody is a, is a Christian, right? Most of the evangelism that you and I do here in the Deep South begins with convincing people who claim to be Christians that they're not. It's quite a fascinating thing. You know, you walk up to someone, hey, are you a Christian? Yes. No, you're not. They think, no, I think I am. I, you know, well, no, 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 you're not a Christian. And then we have to work through all that it means for them to not be a Christian before we can say, and now you can become what you claimed to be earlier, but this time it would be real and it would be actual. When we lived overseas, it was a refreshing thing to talk to people and to ask them, hey, are you a Christian? They're like, no. I'm like, finally, somebody who admits it. See, when we go to the nations, we go to those 
who, many of whom, don't even know what they're not. They don't understand what it means. So often when I talk to people about coming to faith in Jesus and they say, you know, I don't want to follow Jesus. I, I love to engage with them about which Jesus they're not following because I'm probably not following that Jesus either. And it gives us a chance to proclaim to them this wonderful message of there is a king, King Jesus, who's been established on this holy mountain as the crucified and the risen one. And so the nations are those for whom this message is intended to go. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, you have this contrast between Israel and the nations. You have Israel who thinks that they're the chosen ones. And so there's a message for the nations, generally one of doom and gloom and harm. And then there's good news for them. And what happens, obviously, as you know, in the Bible is that there's a turn, a twist, where you come to realize that really Jesus is Israel, and he's the only one who is the righteous one, and Israel is the nation as well. And so they all suffer the consequence of having not followed their king. But the announcement that you and I make to the nations is that there's a king for you, and God has established him on your behalf so that you might could know blessing, that you could go from being the wicked who cannot stand to becoming the righteous who do stand in that day in judgment and who receive all of the blessings that are associated with righteousness. That's the announcement that we get to make to people. The problem that the nations have it's not that they're bad, it's that they're bad off. It's that they have been deceived into following the wrong king and the powers and the principalities, the God of this age controls them and dictates for them how they will live. And you and I get to announce a different way, another king. And so the Lord says, this is my king that I've established. And then this king speaks in the next passage. It's great to hear from the king. It's wonderful to hear what he has to say. And he says this, the king, the king speaks, the Christ, and he says to them, I'm going to declare to you what it is that God has decreed, what his announcement is. And an announcement is this, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. In other words, this king is not just a, a king who is established on a mountain. You see, he's not like a king of this world. He's not like the kings of the nations. He's a different kind of king. In fact, the backdrop to this decree, this announcement of Jesus here being the king is actually Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19, you have this promise that God makes of a prophet, a priest, and a king that he's going to give, that he will provide. And in Deuteronomy 17, he says this. It's fascinating. You don't want to miss this. Deuteronomy 17, he says, when you get into the land, you're going to want a king like the nations around you, like the nations that are here in, in verses 1 and 2. You're going to want a king like this. But what you should ask for is a king that the Lord would give you, but you're not going to do it. The sad story of the, the entire history of Israel in the Old Testament is they're seeking the wrong king. It's the reason why they wanted Saul to be their king, because he was so much like the nation's kings around them. He was powerful. He was a warrior. But they should have asked for a king like the one in Deuteronomy 17. And what is that, what is that king like? Well, he doesn't count his armies. doesn't have to have a whole lot of chariots and horses and all that sort of thing around because he trusts in the Lord. He doesn't have to have a whole lot of wives because he's not trying to build any kind of alliances with people who are around him. 
He writes his own copy of the Bible down, and then he meditates on it day and night. He reads it all of the time and says, that's the kind of king that you should have, the kind of king that is like the man in, in uh, Psalm chapter 1. This Deuteronomy 17 king is the king who is the son of God, brings to us the very being and life of God. And God said, that's the kind of king that you should have. Reject the kings of the world. Reject the God of this age. Reject the powers and the principalities that would lead you to a life of vanity, a life of uselessness, absent blessing, absent God's provision for you. Instead, come to the one who is the very son of God. In fact, the son who is the only begotten of the father, the one who has all that it is to be the father, all that it means to be God, possesses by, in his own very being by nature. Come to that king. Now, the good news about looking to the mountain to see this king is that when you see him, you have seen God. I love this story in the Bible. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and like always, his disciples are quite confused and wrong, which is usually what the disciples were like in the Gospels. And so the disciples ask Jesus, they say, when are you going to show us the Father? We're really interested in knowing the Father, this Father who is here. When are you going to show him to us? And Jesus looks around and he says, have, have we not been together long enough for you to know that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? You think, well, why? Why in having seen him have we seen the Father? And it's because he is this son. You perhaps have been to maybe a funeral or maybe someone said about you, boy, you sure are your father's son. You're your father's daughter. And what they mean by that is not Jerry Springer. We've discovered that you're your father's daughter. What they mean by that is when I look at you, I see your dad. And so when we look to this king, we see the father. We see God. So here's our announcement to people. It's the same announcement that Paul makes in Acts 17. You guys are very religious. And you're not looking for God, but you're looking for God in all the wrong places. You find him when you look to the mountain. Look to the mountain and see this king. And when you see this king, you see God because that king is the only begotten son. For you and for me, if we want to see God... Don't look to the skies and don't look to the stars and don't look to the trees. Run to the hills. Run to the mountain. And there on the mountain, look and see the one who is the king. Now, of course, mountains are quite important when it comes to seeing God and knowing God. There is in Exodus 19 the infamous story of God coming to the mountain in order to be a king promising through Moses to the people that I will make you a kingdom of priests. And I'm going to show up on the top of the mountain, and if you'll come up, then this is what I will accomplish. And so they come to the mountain, and being afraid, they didn't go up on top of the mountain. And Moses comes up by himself, and Moses gets there, and God's like, where are all the people? <laughs> Moses like, they were afraid, and they didn't come. As a result, they missed the blessing. But more than that, they immediately became idolaters because if you'll remember, Moses comes back down the mountain and they're worshiping a golden calf. 
what Romans 1 tells us is having known God, they nonetheless chose to worship the creation rather than the creator, and those are the nations. That the problem that the nations have is not one of intelligence. It, it's not that they have a moral deficiency or they have an intellectual deficiency or they have a religious dis, dis, deficiency. It's not that if we just told them a little bit more, then suddenly everything would be right. It is instead that they're following after the wrong, the wrong king. It's a heart problem, Romans tells us. It's not a head problem. It's not an access problem. It's a heart problem. And so you and I have an opportunity to announce to them, this king has come. And he's not at the top of the mountain any longer. He has come to where we are. He has descended the mountain to, to come to us, to the place where we find ourselves. In fact, he has come to the party where everyone is dancing around the golden calf, and he has kicked the golden calf to the side and said, no, I am the object of your worship. Worship me, not the creation. Worship the creator. It is this king who has come, and it's the picture that he gives us in this next passage. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You read the book of Amos, the book of Obadiah, and you see this promise again that this is what will happen to the nations. They will become the inheritance. We read about in the book of Revelation the smashing of this pottery, the smashing of those with an iron scepter who will be shattered. But it's not to punish them. It's to remake them. You see, this is the hope that we offer to the nations, that you can be broken and rebuilt. You see, it's not broken and scattered, but broken to be repaired. We sang about this just a moment ago where we reminded ourselves in song that it is death that is the means to life. You see, the way for us to be resurrected is to die. The way for us to be healed is to be broken. What the nations have an opportunity is to have an iron scepter that will shatter them like pottery and not like bones. Will not break them into pieces, but will instead break them apart to refashion them into pottery that's useful, a vessel that can be used by this king, a vessel of honor and not of dishonor. The mission that you and I are on as followers of Jesus is to tell the nations, this is your king. And if you will trust in him, that you too will be made vessels of honor and not of dishonor. And so he says to them, then kings, be wise. Don't be foolish. The wisdom that the Bible offers to us, the instruction that the Bible offers to us is this, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. It's what Ecclesiastes said after saying that all of life is vain, gets to the end and says this is the sum of it all that you would trust God, you would serve him with fear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Trust in the Lord, and you will have wisdom. And so we have an opportunity to share with the nations wisdom that they are currently lacking. It's not knowledge they don't have, it's wisdom they don't have. We can share it with them, and this wisdom is to be found in our God himself. It's why Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. If you want to have wisdom, you have to trust in Jesus. You have to receive him. And so he says in verse 12, the answer to all of this is to kiss the son, to kiss the son, to come before him with worship, to give ourselves over to him, to trust in him and to receive him, that Jesus is the centerpiece of, of wisdom because Jesus is this son 
the one who is the only begotten Son, and the one who has come to give us life and to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And this is what God does for us when we become believers, that he removes us from a domain, from a kingdom where we are led around in the darkness by deceiving kings and instead brings us into the Son and his kingdom where there is only light and no darkness at all. We, you and I, as believers, have an opportunity to not only participate in all that God has done and all that God is doing, but to proclaim to others what God has done and is doing for them. And so verse 12 ends the passage with this wonderful message of hope, a warning for come to Christ for forgiveness, trust in the Son, kiss Him so that you do not perish, so that you do not perish. For many people, their conception of God, and it's a misconception, is that God wants people to die, that God wants them to perish, that his desire is for all of the bad people to get what they're due, that he's out to harm those who are his enemies, that the nations are those that God sees as his enemies, as opposed to those who see God as their enemy. But Jesus tells us how God responds to those who see him as an enemy when he tells us that you are to love your enemies. You see, it's not that God in the Old Testament hates his enemies and is out to harm them and smash them to pieces. And then Jesus comes along and offers us a better way than God offers. It is that Jesus comes to reveal to us God's way. And God's way is the way of love. To reach out to those who will, in fact, as a result of their rebellion, perish if they persist and offer them hope instead. Offer them hope. When you and I go to the nations, we're not going to bad people to tell them how bad they are. We're going to those who have no hope to offer hope to them. And the way to hope is to trust in the Son, to trust in Jesus. John chapter 3, there's a verse that summarizes all of Psalm 2. And it's a verse you may very well be familiar with. John chapter 3 verse 16 says this, that God has sent his only begotten Son the one from verse 7, because he loves the world, that they would not perish, but that they might have eternal life. And Jesus says, in the same way that I have been sent, so send I you. When we read John 3.16 as a summary of Psalm 2, we're reminded that the nations who are raging against God do so because they've been deceived by the powers and the principalities, the God of this age, and that we can go and offer them wisdom, we can offer them instruction, that their eyes can be opened, that they truly can have eyes to see and ears to hear, and they might be born again, that their hearts might be smashed so that they can be rebuilt, and that in their brokenness, they might find healing. And the only way the only way the nations hear this is if we tell them the same way that someone told you this message, you have an opportunity as well to tell others. And it's people down the street and perhaps down the row, around the world, and we go faithfully to do that. 20 plus years ago, I sat in this room 
and a student who was one of my one of my best students in my class in one of my classes and we had talked time and again about these very same things in the middle of a chapel service it struck him Jesus wasn't his king Jesus wasn't his king he was one of the nations who needed redemption and he walked down the middle of this aisle the picture still rings out in my mind of him walking down the aisle and falling on his face here at the beginning at the at the at the front of the auditorium and he gave his life to Jesus he's he's a great pastor today and he's a mission sending pastor who sends people around the world from his church and when he came to southeastern he didn't know Jesus but when he left here he did and it may very well be the, that you're the nation today, that you're the people who are raging. And perhaps you need to trust in Jesus today. And you think, well, I'm at Southeastern. How embarrassing. When would shame ever keep us from coming to the life that God have us, has for us because he promises that all those who take refuge in Christ are blessed? Why miss the blessing? And why would we sit idly by when there are so many others who are raging against God and who desperately need the message. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son so that you will not perish. God is for you. He does not desire that you would perish, but desires that you and they would come to know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus, and we thank you for this passage, the promise of a king, and the provision of a king. And we pray that as we trust in this king, Jesus as our King, that we would know his blessings and then that we would make those blessings known. Help us to be those who hear the words that in the same way that Christ was sent, that so too are we, that we would go and proclaim to others that the nations can cease their raging, can cease their striving, and can find hope and life in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.